Hello everyone, welcome to the Road to Recovery podcast. This podcast is a platform for education, discussion, and conversations on mental health. I'm your host, Amira Shah, and in this podcast, you'll get to know more about the therapeutic process, insight into life from the perspective of the psyche, and also join me in exploring current issues with other practitioners. I specialize in grief, but I'm always interested in learning about the human experience of the mind, heart, and spirit. So join me on this journey of in-depth learning about ourselves and the world we live in. Welcome back to Science of the Soul. I have with me today Isabel, and Isabel is someone I worked with um, in Melaleuca in Darwin a couple of years ago, and she's currently in Adelaide. Am I right? Hi, Isabel. Hello, Amira. Thanks very much for having me today. Thank you for joining me, actually. Now, let me introduce you to our listeners. So Isabel is a community educator, and she works with um, the Spanish-speaking community. She has a radio show and an online chat with Spanish-speaking women worldwide. Isabel's background is in art and psychology and also in supporting disabilities. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you do? Thanks, Amira. I have a background in psychology and counseling and also um, education, so I'm a teacher. I try to utilize all my skills and talents to to help people, especially in the mental health area. Um, I work with multicultural communities. I work with uh, people that have come as refugees in Australia, so there is a lot of trauma background. Uh, when you're dealing with these communities. So I utilize a lot of um, art and and culture and music and, you know, fun activities to get people to communicate, to get people to talk, to get people to uh, find a connection and find kind of sometimes the light at the end of the tunnel. When people come um, to Australia from different backgrounds, whether you come in as a humanitarian entrant, which is, you know, people that are called refugees, or even you're a migrant, there is some trauma coming with you. And sometimes you have to put it aside, hide it there, um, and then go on with your life because you need to go get a job, you need to um, assimilate to the community and do everything that is expected of you. So I utilize that little bit of space to to connect people, to help people um, integrate in, in a better way, just having a chat, and, and, you know, and we, we do it in a way that is fun, that is not daunting on people. You don't have to tell your story, you know, none of that. But people get to learn strategies um, on how to cope with things, you know, with everyday, everyday life stuff. That's, that's what I do. So at the moment, I'm, you know, utilizing online because, you know, everybody's locked up in a way still because of the virus. So I'm trying to take advantage of that. You work with groups mainly, don't you? Yes, mainly with groups. Um, so, yeah, so I've got at the moment a group of uh, young women 
They are from all from different backgrounds. Uh, majority of them arrived here as uh, children or teenagers from uh, different war-torn zones uh, like Afghanistan, Iran, um, Congo. And so, yeah, so I work with them on a project where they help me create messages for other young people that may have a disability. And um, we talk about the importance of education, employment, and participation in the community. So I do different groups and we do activities. And that way they, they are doing something that they, they like, they enjoy, but at the same time, they're learning strategies, they're learning how to communicate, they're making friends with other people, they're learning skills that can then, um, you know, hopefully utilize uh, later on in life when, when they go to university or they study at TAFE, whatever they want to do. So it's like building interpersonal skills, but also intrapersonal skills as to how to manage and cope with um, life, I guess, adulting. In, in a different country. That's right. So when I, sometimes I work, you know, I work with uh, partners in the community. So it means that to give you an example for these, these young people that I work with, they actually care for family members. They, because they came here and they learned English faster than their parents, most of the time they take care of, of family members. And also they are the interpreters in community. So the family members may be sick or they need to visit a doctor. They are the ones doing the term interpreting and they have been doing this since they were five or six years old. So there's a lot of responsibility um, in these young people. So sometimes I work with organizations that support people that are, are young carers, for example, and I bring them in to work with the group. And one of the things that I always tell them uh, because not everybody really, uh, I'm not saying that you have to be an expert, but you need to be prepared to work with um, a group of young people that come from a trauma-based background. So I always say to people, don't ask personal questions. Just join the activity, have fun, you know, ask questions like, what's your name? How old are you? Just leave it there. But don't go back into, you know, where are you from? What do you do there? And all that kind of stuff, because that's going to bring up things that we might not be able to manage in, you know, in those two hours that we have with it. And it might bring, you know, bad memories and all that kind of stuff. So, so people having a conversation with a cup of tea with, with a friend that where you can go to places in a conversation, you might not be able to do that with, with a group of young people that come. Number one, they were born in camps. They have lived in a tent all their lives. And for the first time in their life, they have a house. They have shoes to wear. They go to school. You know, these kind of things that for us, we take for granted. For other people, it might take 20, 30 years of their life to be able to do that. Or they have lost a parent during a war. So they come with, with a mom or they, or they come with an auntie and they don't have a mom and dad. So, so you know, oh, what's your mom saying? Will your dad say? Will you, do you live with your mom and your dad? You, we, you know, I ask people, do not ask any of those questions. Just join the group, have fun, support them. If they have any questions, you, you give them the answers. But yeah, the, those intrusive conversations is that normally what happens when people work with this type of communities and then the community builds a wall and they don't want to deal with the mainstream anymore. 
because they find working with mainstream very you know, intrusive. So we need to build that trust. We need to build a report. And the only way to do it is by just doing projects such as this. And in my work, my job is basically to work with people with disability to ensure that they have the information they need in order to access their shared education. When we talk about disability in multicultural communities, that is something that people don't talk about. For a lot of people, disability is something that was brought on to you by witchcraft or something that you did in the community and you were punished or people don't separate themselves from from disability. Sometimes, you know, it, it, that's who you are. You, you were born without a leg. You were born blind. You, that's part of you. You don't separate your disability from that. So it is a difficult space to work in. And that's why a lot of organizations that work with multicultural communities and with disability find it very hard to connect because the first question they ask is, do you have a disability? They don't even know what that is. They don't even know what that means. Does your family, do they have a disability? That, you know, we need to, number one, build the trust with that, those young people so they know that you're there to do good to them. And then you can start, you know, slowly those conversations about what is a disability. And in a lot of times they understand disability, but they don't see that onto themselves. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they don't recognize that they have serious anxiety that they might take that as a disability, but they can see it in other people that consider. So it's a process. So I work with, you know, universities here that are dying to have, uh, you know, to do research in young people with disability. And they say, oh, we just, we just need 10 people. Like if you don't do activities with them, if you don't build that trust and rapport with them, no one is going to come to you and say, yes, you can interview me, I have a disability. That's not gonna happen in a million years. You know what I mean? When I worked with this group, I started working with this group in I think May, 2020. And I, I used the word disability in September last year. It took me that long to make sure that they were not gonna run for the hills when I started talking about disability. I needed to build that rapport with them to make sure that they trusted me before I came here and said, hey guys, we need to talk about disability. So it, it takes a long time. So a lot of programs you know, from government, you know, they give you a year to do something with, with multicultural communities. A year only takes you just to build the, 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 you know, the report. Yeah. And that's why a lot of, you know, for example, here we have a lot of communities that are mainly multicultural, majority are multicultural, like in councils, and they all should be able to access the NDIS, for example, but it doesn't happen. So this is because they don't recognize that they have a disability and it doesn't, it takes them a long time to get there. And then from there, then understand the services and the supports that are available to them if they do acknowledge that they are disabled. Oh, they need they need access, they need help and support to do something. That that's the way I put it, because it's it's very, I would imagine it's very traumatizing 
uh, to tell someone, you know, you have a disability or you are disabled. That is just the most horrifying thing anyone can say to anybody. But the way that I say it is, okay, if you, let's say you're deaf, you're going to need someone to help you communicate, or you might need a software to help you communicate. You know, it's not nothing bad about the fact that you're deaf, but in order for you to go to school or, you know, do your job, you might need, you might use certain, um, certain software or an offline interpreter. So I always put it on the positive side, but for multicultural communities, number one is that the help at the moment is coming. Let's say that the help comes from the NDIS, just to give an example. Um, they see the NDIS as a government entity. Okay, in a way it is, the money is coming, you know, for taxpayer money or whatever is coming from the government. So a lot of these communities don't trust governments. You know, why do I have to tell you all my information? Why do I have to tell you everything? So there, there are so many barriers for, for these communities that they end up without any help at all because they are petrified of trusting someone. So that's why it takes a long time. So, so what I'm trying to do with, with my projects and the way that I do on my volunteer work is that I just go around it. Let's do something that, you're, that you like. Let's try to um, do an activity that you enjoy. And then we can have those conversations instead of me going in there and saying, okay, blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? So I try to come up with different activities that people go, oh my God, that's so much fun. Immediately builds that bridge of trust. And then on the other side, people go, hey, I need help with this and I need help with that. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. That, that's the way that it might work. It's almost disguised assistance. Yes, exactly. I don't know if you notice, but, you know, for example, um, I have also met, you know, uh, Australian women that work in the space. And they said, well, you know, we put a nice morning tea and we do these PowerPoint presentations and we talk and we give them all these examples and they're there sitting just completely quiet, listening to us, looking at the PowerPoint. And then, you know, we close, we ask questions and nobody has any questions. When I go into the bathroom, two or three follow me to the bathroom. And that's when they ask me the question. And I go, yeah, because it took those two hours for those two you know, people to trust you and to be able to ask you those questions. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so that, that is, yeah, it's just people keep on doing the same thing, waiting for a different response. Mm. And yeah, we just need to change. So for me, is I like doing things in a completely different ad hoc way. I know it works. Um, it might take longer, but I get good results. Can I share a few things? Um, you, you brought up some, some uh, key points there. And I have a few anecdotes um, I want to share because we used to work together in... Um, a humanitarian sector in Darwin. So I recall that building trust with some of the families that, you know, I was working with was like pulling teeth. It was so hard. It was so hard. Like they trusted you 
that you're not out there to hurt them or harm them, but they didn't trust the system. They didn't trust authorities. It was not something they trusted. And I remember one of our colleagues, Anne, she called me out one day because I was wearing army print. Well, they were army pants. They're from Singapore. Um, it was like the old uniform. An old boyfriend had given it to me and I still had it because it fits. And I wore it to work. Um, and Anne said, you probably shouldn't wear this because this might actually trigger some of the clients. And it's so crazy how we don't think in that way. We really have to start, but when working with people who are different from us, anyone, like whether it's disability or from, you know, um, the cult communities or whatever it is, we just have to remember that they see the world slightly differently because of their past and their backgrounds and the possible traumas, especially patients or not patients, I guess people with a mental health history, a psychiatric history as well, where, you know, they've been uh, institutionalized. They really have had very different experiences from, from us. And, you know, that really helped me rethink how to navigate myself when working with them as well. And, and over time, to actually give time, give time and not expect results. Um, patience was something I, I, I really learned as well because building rapport with them was so different because you think you have built a relationship because they're so kind and giving and you know inviting and warm. But then when it comes to information and um, history and more personal things, it's like, no, we're not going there. And I don't want to go there kind of thing. Like they'll tell me, they're like, I'm not going there. That was in the past and we don't have to talk about it. I want to come here and move forward. And, you know, I want to make something of my life. I just don't want to go back there. But then it was really, really hard to help them understand that if we don't address some of the things from the past, we can't heal in order for you to move forward effectively and yeah, that, that's the, that's, I, I figured that I figured from my work there, um, that was the hardest part. And I remember working with youth as well. We were working with um, teenage girls and in, in order to get this community engagement and, and, and trauma work in, which would happen in like six weeks, we started off with like, let's learn about hormones and let's learn about what it's like to be a girl. <laughs> you know some like obscure topic um let's hang out together sit down and do some like drawings and whatnot and over time then we could be like so what's been going on for you at home you know on the side a little bit like you know how school are you struggling you know how is it how's learning the language that sort of thing and that can only happen like weeks 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 later um we started doing yoga together as well so we did trauma and yoga. That was fun. But um, a lot of the times I find that these programs that we run, like you say, it needs a lot of time and funding is a problem mm -hmm. because you can't okay. stretch them out for as long as we need because trust is hard to build. You know, it's not something you can measure and quantify. It, it really isn't. And if you want to work on a, a recovery program or a healing program it's it's hard because you need all these like kpis you need all these um objectives that you have to meet in order to you know present a proposal and get results and la 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 
but you can't put a number or a or an estimate or a quantity of some form of measure. You can't put a measure on trust. How do you mm. how do you deal with that? Oh, absolutely. And and you know, so I see people like onions. You know, you have an onion, you have to peel the layers. And as you're saying, exactly, people don't want to go there. We know that they need to go there, but you need to give them time. And it might take a year before they go, okay, I want to talk about what happened to me back then. But so you need to go with the peeling of the layers with them. Um, And so to me is if I am able to at least make them feel confident enough so they can speak up for themselves and and so they can build their self-esteem, I've done something. You know what I mean? So when I started with this group, I just to give you an example with the young people, they were shy. They were not speaking. They were looking down. They were not looking at me. They were, some of them were holding onto each other, literally holding onto each other. Okay. Wow. Together like that, on, you know, on like the table, cuddles. holding on yeah. to each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, amazing. One would write for the other. They would not write by themselves. I mean, it was like seriously walls all over the place, but we started slowly just making it fun. Normally what I do, the first activity I do, I do a vision board and then, you know, and I put a lot of, you know, colors and images and magazines and whatever. And then I want you to tell me about you. Um, how do you see yourself right now? And how do you see yourself going into the future now that you're here in this country? And then from there we go. I don't ask questions. If they want to talk about their own vision board, it's fine. If they don't want to talk about their vision board, it's fine too. So I just let that go. I take a look around and and I might pick up a few things. And because my KPIs are about education and employment, I normally tell my story. I you know so people can connect. Um, I tell them that I am an award winner teacher. I won an award, um, and you know and those kind of things. So so then don't feel because you came to this country and you know you're learning from the bottom doesn't mean that you can achieve things. So I, I, you know, that's why I try to tell my story as a way to motivate people. And then slowly we go from there. If you see those girls right now, you will not believe that they were the ones looking down, holding on to each other. Wow. Completely. I mean, they're incredible. They're, you know, they just open up, blossom like flowers. It's just incredible. That is to me, if I can build a self-esteem, I've done it because it gives me, it gives them that power to, to speak up. So through the process, because I have, you know, I've been throwing different words and words at big. Mm. So one of them was saying, I want to do this and I keep on doing this, but people don't tell me, people don't give me, I say, you know what you're doing? You're self-advocating. There, I'm what? So I have to write it down. And, you know, I'm, I'm pronounce it advocate, you know, so that because they're all learning English. Right. As, you know, not, exactly. You know, some of them are learning how to write in a, a different alphabet, because if you write in Farsi or if you write in, in Arabic, it's completely different to learn English. Right. So it's a huge process of learning a language. So they have learned words such as 
advocacy, reasonable adjustments. Imagine gigantic words, but they know what that means. Slowly, so when they see something, I mean, I show them a, a, um, a documentary and they go, okay, that means that, that means that they are able to connect. But if I start a typical class, oh, I'm going to teach you. Oh my God, I personally will get bored to death. But if I am uh, creating a poster, today we're going to create a poster about messages that we will tell people with disability about education. What would you say? And what kind of images will you use? They are in the space. They love it. They are creating. They're thinking. They're, you know, arguing with one another. Why don't we use this? And, you know, and they're helping each other. They're having so much fun that, you know, they're like, they don't feel they're learning, but they are. So when they afterwards, I mean, we had an event on the 3rd of December, which is the International Day for People with Disabilities. And we had, we had the mayor of the city present. We had an MP present, very rare. You know how they are. They come in, they do the speech and they disappear. No, they stayed for the two and a half hours of the event. And at the end, they asked the group questions. Those questions were totally unprompted. They were just questions. And all of them answered the questions and they were taking turns. I'll, I'll, I'll answer that question. I'll answer that question. I mean, incredible. And as I said, these were kids that they were unable to look at your in your eyes the first time I met them a year and a half ago. So they, you know, now that I want to do this, I want to do that. And I know, okay, how do I find, so any more about this, they're learning about the systems. And so they know that they have to use the systems to, to their benefit. Mm-hmm. The, the systems are there. They don't work the, the normal way, the way that I know in my world. Because imagine if you are born, you know that very well, you're born in a camp. You spend 15 years living in a tent. You spend 15 years fighting for the bag of rice. And all of a sudden, there is a supermarket where you choose what kind of brand of rice you're going to eat. You know, like, hello, Mm. completely different. So they have to understand that it's a different system, but the system will have some benefit for them. But only building that capacity in them is how we do it. Later on, I don't know. I really, to tell you the truth, I don't know anything about them. They sometimes tell me some stories. Sometimes they don't. So I know a little bit. Some of them have opened up more than than others. So I know a little bit of the trauma that they went through. But they are, as you're saying, uh, exactly that. They are I want to do this. I want to be a doctor or I want to be a dentist and I want to be a this and I want to be a that. They're just in that space of let me get to my goal and don't bother me. And eventually, eventually they will trust somebody to say, I need to speak about what happened to me or, you know, those kind of things. But at the moment, I let, I leave them alone. I don't even go there because they, I know that they have the capacity to speak up and they feel good with themselves. The, the sky's the limit. I always say the sky's the limit. Whatever you want to do, you can do. Just just decide what you're going to do. And I'm happy to put you, you know, in, in the, the right path. You'll get there. So when they're feeling more empowered, then mm-hmm. they're feeling more confident 
to be vulnerable. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, it's yeah, it's quite interesting. Like, like, that. Like you, you you start building the the person, you know, from ground up in terms of self esteem and skills and all that, and then you know they they know what they're doing. They're a bit more confident. They're more competent. Um, they can navigate through life in Australia, and they are achieving things as well. They're being heard. They're being listened to. They're contributing to the society as well. And over time, um, they start to feel good about themselves you know the self-esteem value worth starts rising and the stuff from the past becomes like something they can handle they can tackle they can talk about because now it's like now I have the strength and the confidence to to look back and talk about hey that was pretty shit what was that about you know this really affected me and that was not cool or I miss this person. I, you know, I, I, I'll never see this person again. So, so I, I wonder if, if that's a thing because it just kind of hit me right now hearing you speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think so. I think it's at the beginning it might be, you know, the trauma is, is, is there, and because you live with trauma. 24 hours a day, there is not a break in your life. You know, you're fighting to survive. You're fighting to eat. You're fighting, you know, you're, it's, it's that constant struggle. Once you're out of that struggle and you're in a different space, then that is not so important anymore. Yeah, it is important. It did, it did impact me. But you know what? I'd rather spend this energy building myself up finding you know I have one that asked me said can you please find me a tutor for chemistry and math because I want to become a dentist and I want to do really well I need help because you know this happened to me when I lived in a camp I think it's is that it gives him that power and and I when we met I was you know I was doing a, a addressing a domestic violence program and I realized that it was exactly you know for me and I was told the girls once you show yourself as a very confident woman that you know what you want, that you know where you are, those guys that abuse or choose to abuse, they're not going to go after you. You're the least thing that they will be interested in. So you need to build your self-esteem and your confidence and show yourself as a, as a powerful, empowered woman and go out there and go grab things. And those guys will not be on your way. And that's, that was a lesson. I mean, I was using that for the women and they, they didn't think like that was possible. But then going through the program, they realized, I said, yes. I mean, the most important thing is what I think of myself, is what I want. That is the most important thing. So I think, you know, using, using that, it helps mitigate some of the other mental health, you know, uh, situations that you might encounter because you are, it's like as you're saying, you are sort of like completing yourself. You're making yourself whole. Yeah. And that, yeah, there, you know, nobody can go big poke holes in you. Yeah. And then you, you need time for that personal growth and development as well. But as you filling out, your sense of self or your, your core self and your ambitions and your purpose and all this, that's growing and becoming clearer and clearer. It becomes, although it takes time, it starts becoming quite uh, solid and crystallized and robust. 
So it makes it easier to draw boundaries as well because you're like, yeah, well, this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm doing things. This is how I live my life. And then when you have external agents or people that demand certain things or um, impose or encroach, you're just like, actually, I don't have time or space for this because I got to go do my my shit here, you know, because I have this this, this, exactly. this, this goal right here. Unfortunately, you know how it is in some schools, we have some teachers that are really good teachers and we have some teachers that are really bad teachers. So sometimes they encounter those bad teachers that they say, you know, oh, you want to be a doctor? You know, who told you who can be a doctor? And they tell the teacher off and they go, hello, you don't know me and watch me, you know, those kind of things. So they are building themselves to the point that, yeah, there are no barriers where I'm, we're going to go there. We, they need more of that. They, they, they're always encountering people. People here, my, my philosophy has always been the glass half full. Look at the glass half full and see how can you finish filling it in. But for some reason, a lot of people have this philosophy of the, the empty glass. They're always what I don't have, what I don't know, you know. So they encounter teachers that should not be teachers. So that's my very personal opinion um, that they shouldn't be, you know, mentoring young people. They they should not be working with children. If you have the mentality that when you see a person, all you see is a deficit, which is, you know, the, the problem with disability, all you see is a disability, then, you know, you shouldn't be in that job. To me, that's why it's so important. So important that you that you know where you're going and no one's going to stop you. So you're strong enough to achieve your goals. And then with what you're educating them with eventually, which is the system, they know how to tap into supports in order to, I guess, propel them towards their hopes and dreams and ambitions. Hey guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to Science of the Soul. This is a short interruption to let you know that if you or someone you know are in need of more support, you can find me at Road to Recovery on my Facebook page, my Instagram, or my website at aroadtorecovery.org. I hope you've enjoyed listening so far. And now let's get back to the podcast. But I did want to ask you something, and this is coming from, uh, I guess the question is first coming from a more personal um, anecdote, I guess. When teachers who have different philosophies that don't support you and they're not very encouraging, let's try and be PC here. (laughs) So teachers teachers that are not teachers because they have a vocation. I think vocation is so important. Passion is so important. So teachers when you have the vocation. Yes, yes. So when 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 I was young, when I was in primary school, I remember being bullied or shot down by teachers. And I was in a gifted class, opted to be in the gifted class because I was smart enough but not actually gifted, okay? So, but I wanted to go to, into that class because my best friend and I wanted to be together. And she was also in my boat. So we could have gotten, um, we could have gone, gone to different classes, but we knew that if we both 
aimed for this one class there's only one of it we'll be together we get to sit together so you know we couldn't be apart like so so yes we both got in um and and I was struggling because I was not gifted I was just slightly above average I think so I was in the second bottom half of the class of 40 and my teacher adored the top students he adored them you know and I was no longer the smartest girl in class. I was for like four, five, six years. And this was not the case anymore. Um, I was one of the dumbest in class. And my teacher did not adopt a very encouraging approach. He bullied me and humiliated me in class a lot when I, went, when I just passed my test or I didn't do good enough, you know, like the others who were, they were scoring like 98%. Okay, I was like 60, you know, I was like, yes, I passed. And they're like, oh, I'm half a mark short of full marks. But I, it didn't bother me that much because they knew they were gifted. They were actually gifted. You know, their IQs were off the charts. Um, but my teacher really made me feel, feel like I belonged under his shoe. And I was humiliated in class and he would smack me on the head and things like that. That actually fueled me to do better and better and better. So much so that at the end of the year or the end of the primary school, um, we got these um, certifications. And I obviously didn't, I was not the best because I just don't have that, um, those genes. But I surpassed a lot of his favorite students' um, grade point average. And I got into the school of my dreams that I wanted to get into. But a lot of that was me thinking, I need to prove him wrong. I really need to prove him wrong. So the scars are still there, but that, that being humiliated and bullied and feeling like, you know, very, very small, very stupid, although it stayed with me until sometimes today, it did propel me upward until now, looking back at the people who thought that I wouldn't you know, I was not good enough. So I was just wondering what your experiences or what your thoughts are on so-called less than good teachers. Yeah, well, I mean, you're lucky that your self-esteem was was good because you said, well, I'm going to prove him wrong. But no, a person it, it with losses. Of- it wasn't actually. I think? It, okay, I was, well, that's, I felt, it was, I was good. I cried a lot. My mom got me every tutor she could pay for. <laughs> to get, you know, I was miserable. Studied really hard. Is like Isabel, you have no idea. I had no childhood. <laughs> I had no childhood. Okay, I didn't. I didn't play. I didn't hang out with friends. I had tuition all the time. I was doing extra classes. You know, like I. I was dreaming math. <laughs> I got to that point. Wow. <laughs> I was twelve. <laughs> Um, it was torturous. So I know. I, I mean, but I, you know. Could, I, I know it could have gone the other way. I mean, it could have, you could have said, I'm going to drop out of school. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go, I'm going to drop out of school. So, I mean, it's a good thing that you took it on the, on the half glass full type of, you know, situation. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm here. I want to go there. I want to fill up my glass. I want to, you know, be top of the class, but other people would have said, oh, you know what? I'm giving up. I'm not going to study anymore. So it's a good thing that you reacted that way. You know, you probably had, you know, I can tell by what you're telling me with your mom, you probably had supportive parents. Yeah, that's you know, you, 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 you had a supportive 
environment. Yeah, yeah. But if you don't have that, people go yeah, down no, the bottom. Right. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. So, so, so yeah, the problem with these so-called teachers is that they're just there to do a job and for, a, for, a, for whatever reason they chose to study education. It's so important for me, that's why it's so important to build the capacity in children. So when children are in school and they encounter these situations, they, they have the capacity to fight it. Do you know what I mean? But if, because if they don't, you know, they can be crushed yeah. by, you know, what, by these people. And, 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 you know, it, it's, that is across the board because that, that could happen to you if you have a, a, a good boss or bad boss. You know, you could be fabulous at, at the job that you do and you have a, a boss that for some reason, you know, is not empowering. Mm. Then you start doubting yourself. So it's pretty much across the board. So that, that's what I really believe that building capacity in people is the best thing that you can do uh, before anything else you know, before talking about any diagnosis, if you're going to do psychology, you know, any of that. I think the main thing is to make people see the positive side, you know, always look at the positive because that's what's going to make you have the, you know, the, the energy to go on. I, um, sometimes I talk to people and it's so funny because, you know, it's just like, let's say, oh, well, I'm going to try, you know, you're very good at cooking. I, I know that because I've tasted your food. <laughs> so it's really good. You. But, you know, some people say, uh, you know, but some people might say, oh, I want to, you know, like like in your case, you're really good at, you're really good at cooking. And somebody says to you, oh, you know, Amir, I want to learn how to bake bread. And you know how hard that is, but you're not going to, you know, you're going to say to the person, oh, it's just so hard. And it's going to take you like three <laughs> years to make sure that, that the dough rises. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you do that, you're going to crush that person's dreams. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Let them try the bread. Let them go through the process. It might take them a couple of years to get a good, a good batch of bread. But that's what they want to do. Let them do it. You know, let them do it and give it a try. And I think it is, maybe it's, it's a cultural thing that that's how we've been, you know, around the world is that unless you have the capacity, you do that. I think people should try everything. I think, you, should, you know, you give it a try. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But at least you give it a try. I don't know where your skills and your talents lie. Like, for example, um, you might be, you might think that, for, okay, you're, you're a creative person, right? You, I mean, you've got pink hair. Um, you know, you, you use <laughs> art. You use art to 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 um to psychoeducate and and connect people. So, you might be a creative person, but you don't know if your creativity extends into the kitchen, extends onto the canvas, extends through you know digital arts. Like you just don't know. You know, creativity is it's a feature that we have and we don't know how far we can go with it if we don't try, for example. Exactly. And that's why I said, you know, just give it a try. It doesn't work, but at least you give it a try, mm. you know, and there are people that all of a sudden, you know, you probably met some, but they all of a sudden go, I'm going to go try that. And they're fantastic at it. And, you know, you're like, wow, you know, you're so good at it. And they don't even believe themselves because they're like, 
oh my God, you know, like for example, people wanting to dance or to do sports or to do things like that. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they do it and they're like, bloody hell, I'm really good at this, you know? And I'm like, well, go for it. You know, you didn't know, you tried it. But here when, you know, in education is, education is so insulated. School, the school system here is insulating and the same in majority of the world. Just to give you an example, Finland is a country with the lowest percentage of people that do not know how to read and write. Literally, they're 99% of they, they are totally literate. Okay. They don't go to school. Finnish schools don't have classes. They are all projects. So kids go to school, yes, kids go to school and do projects. And maybe two hours in a week, they sit down in class and they write down about their project or they write a report about their project and that's how they learn how to read and write. So don't tell me that a country that has zero illiteracy, they don't have classes. And look at this, it's mind blowing. Oh my God. So Australia, that is everything is based on classes. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not up to date with this because, you know, I left the literacy world a, a few years ago. But when I was working in the literacy space, 53% of the population could not follow um, a cooking recipe, could not read a, a, um, a timetable for a train. And almost, I don't know, I can't remember exactly, but there was a high amount of people that could not read and write. One of the highest levels of low English, English writing and reading and mathematics skills in the world, Australia, okay? Well, Australians. Yes, yeah, and they go to class. They go to class every day. So, so, that's what I'm saying. To me is we need to change the way we teach our children. We need to change things because, you know, we're, we're not making this any easier for anybody. I, I, I use the example of Finland because I think they do amazing stuff. That's what you're doing. You're teaching through projects. Project yeah. teaching. I'm teaching English as a second language through projects. So all these young people are learning English, are learning how to, um, they, they're improving their grammar, they're improving their, 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 um, their spelling, they are improving, you know, they're learning new vocabulary, all through projects. Wait, because um, I used to teach English as a second language as well, I did that for six years. And it's such a cool job. It's so fun. And I taught adults. Um, I think that was really fun as well because I always learned from them, always. And when you teach through an activity, you're building a lot of context around the vocabulary and the grammar and you know all the lexical stuff that comes into the lesson. And when you learn through context, you don't forget it because it's meaning-based learning. Correct. And it's Paolo Freire. It's Paolo Freire's methods. Methods. So it's a method of Paolo Freire. So you know how you know who Paolo Freire is. I so would imagine no. No. <laughs> Paolo. Well, pa Paolo Freire is the father of literacy, basically. 
and 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 he's also he's also deemed as the father of social work. Interesting enough. So Paulo Freire uh, was an educator in Brazil and in Brazil, there were going to be elections and they could people could not vote unless they were literate in Portuguese. So he went to the to the camps in Brazil and taught 350 cane workers. So they were chopping cane Everybody every day. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. And he, yeah. So, and he, in 40 days, taught them how to read and write to the point that they could pass the test of whatever that was and they could vote in the elections. So that is the Paulo Freire method. So the number one thing is find your context. You find your context. Number two, you use the vocabulary around your context. And then number three, then you incorporate new information around that. That was his method. So he used um, lunchtime. Every lunchtime, they, the king workers will sit down and have their sandwich or whatever that they were gonna have. And he started teaching them around that. Okay, so that's the name of the, you know, this is how you spell, you know, sugar. And, and what, how do you do, what do you do with sugar? Well, with sugar, we do juice and we do this and we do that. So that's how he developed language um, in these people. And he did that. So that is his method. So if you don't use that context, you know, no, nobody was, you know, nobody was going to know what in the world you're talking about. And that's what happens in classrooms here. People come in with something out of the world and you're like, and imagine learning, you know, math or physics or chemistry with something that you have never heard about. But if you go out there, like in Finland, and you take a project and you're going to test the water of the river to make sure that the frogs are healthy, then when you go back into the classroom and you teach them chemistry, they go, ha, huh, I understand now. I know what pH I know what is, you know, acidity, you know, and then they're learning the word acidity, they're learning the word, you know, uh, balance, chemicals, all that stuff. That is the way we should all learn. But together, I don't know we're ever going to be to do that, but yeah. At least I'm trying with my with my groups. <laughs> it's, it's going well. It's successful. So that's always promising. At least you can do it in small scales and, you know, in, in, in small projects here. That's right. If it's not in the mainstream education, like, to be honest, a lot of people are dropping out of mainstream education anyways. They're preferring to homeschool their kids. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it depends. I mean, I think that, you know, homeschooling is not sitting in your kitchen table and doing homework. Mm. Um, homeschooling is, you know, you need to go out there and, you know, into the outdoors, meeting people, doing things. To me, the, the, you have to, you have to have the opportunity to, to do something out there in the world. Um, you know, just being behind the computer all day long, that's, you're not going to be learning. You need, you need a connection. You need to be out there. The participatory knowledge comes from participating and learning along the way. There's this other uh, thing I wanted to ask you, and I'm not sure if I've asked you before in the past. Have you read The Island by Huxley? No. Okay, it's a book by Aldous Huxley. And if you're not reading anything right now, maybe 
um, it's nice. It would be nice to look into it because it's not a thick book. It's quite thin. I'm vision impaired. So I have to find them in um, Kindle. Kindle. Okay. I'm sure there if is. If they're in Kindle, if I, if I, if, yeah, I read books in Kindle. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm sure they have it because it's a Huxley book. It's like a classic. And okay. it's about um, how there's this island of, you know, native people and they've been living in a certain way for a really long time and their education system is basically they would learn all about geometry in one go not like bits and pieces as they get older um mm. learn all about you know biology in one go and they'll do it in different groups and then they swap and they teach each other and then okay. uh, they have another system where, you know, boys, young men or, you know, young boys, they're just too energetic. They're, they're not going to be able to sit and learn and do experiments. So they mm. put them into the forest. So they do work. Um, so they learn about timber. They learn how to build. They learn all these um, vocational skills because they have the energy. And then later when, you know, the hormones have kind of like sorted themselves out, they go into back into you know, learning things where, you know, they need more concentration, cognitive concentration. And then every child learns psychological first aid. And they learn about, yeah, they learn about like presence, present, they learn um, how to listen and how to sit with people. It's so utopian in in its, you know, in its storyline. It's just beautiful. It blew my mind. I love that story. Um, I think you might enjoy it as well. Okay, well, I look at I will look it up in um, Kindle. Okay, I'll send you. I can download it. So. I'll send it to you. Great, thank you. So, can you tell me a little bit more about your radio show? I have a segment that is about mental health. I bring a little bit of knowledge to people with a little bit of strategy. So, my my first um, episode was about mindfulness. And so I told them the story about Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the, by coincidence, um, one of the people that were interviewed for the show actually spoke about mindfulness. And that same week, the uh, monk uh, Thich Hanh uh, actually passed away. And I thought, oh, great opportunity to talk about mindfulness. And so he is the, the you know, considered the father. He's a Vietnamese monk and um, he is considered the father of mindfulness. So he started getting people to, to walk behind him all in line in silence and talking to them and concentrating on the present. So, you know, he's, um, what he said was, you, you need to concentrate on what you're doing right now. You you should, you cannot be doing something and thinking about the past or thinking about the you know about the future. You can only think about the present. So he concentrated that you know that mindfulness is you know it will make you um, it will it will help you concentrate more. It will help you do your task better. And and I know that um, in Google um, the, the the company they actually get the employees to go out and walk around the building 
um, every every day and just do that. Just they don't have phones. They are not talking to each other. They just need to walk, walk around the building and just be um, in the moment, being in the present. So I spoke about that, and you know, and and I just um, gave an example of um, you know making a cup of tea. You know, the art of a cup of tea. You know, uh, boiling the water. You know, putting the, the the tea in the cup, putting the water in the cup. You know, concentrating on all of that. And just for five minutes, it, that that's an exercise that is, you know, it's good for your mind and it's also good for your soul. So, yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm going to be, I'm actually recording this weekend, my my next episode. So it's, um, I'm going to talk about positive psychology, about um, Martin Seligman and um, the art of positive psychology, because out of that, many other things will come so that's what I'll do and yeah and then I'll possibly um, do my online session and I'm just gonna get people to um, tell stories so I'm looking for um, you know nice images interesting images that I can show the group and then the group will choose an image and then they can tell me a story based on that image so yeah so that's that's more or less what I do so the show airs um, the last um, Friday of every month. And at the moment, I'm meeting online with this group um, uh, twice twice a month. So I try to connect it um, a little bit of what I said in the show with what I, what I do. But I also, you know, pick up from what happens um, in the group as well. The idea is to spend an hour doing something very creative, doing something in the moment, so very mindfulness, so something that you do in the moment, and also connecting with other people that are positive, that are motivating, and that, you know, sort of, you know, believe in you, even though they don't know you, but they feel that same connection, and that is the idea of of that online connection. It's in English. It's in Spanish, and then I'm going to be doing the one in English. I'm creating the the demo, so we have, hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, yeah, one of the radio stations here wants to do the same thing in English. (laughs) Super exciting. Um, Actually, would you mind telling our listeners how to find your radio show? Uh, well, I will have to send you because I don't remember exactly on the top of my head. The the I think it's EBFM one zero three point five, but I'm not exactly sure. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I'll be happy to send it to you, and so then people can I send you the link, so then yeah, people yeah. can find it. Yeah, and I'll I'll attach the link under the description of this podcast episode. And the online chat group that you run twice a month, was it? Is that a yes, twice a month open group? At the moment, it's only Spanish speaking, but we hopefully when the English version of the radio show goes out, we will have an English version group. So I will also give you. Um, the email where people can connect with me through the email and be part of the group. Excellent. Currently, your main projects are with the Spanish-speaking community in Adelaide and worldwide. On on the radio, that's right. Online on radio is only for Spanish-speaking. Face-to-face, multicultural communities. I see. So I work in English with different communities from different parts of the world. I have one question for you before we wrap up. 
what is the one thing you value the most when working with diversity? I think is being able to learn about other cultures without you having to travel. I think it's just so important. Um, you know, you learn about how, you know, white people dress in a certain way. Uh, the type of, I love food. So, you know, all the cooking that comes from other countries, that's what I value the most. And, and I think, you know, and as you know, in, in Melaluca, we were, we were eating all the time. So that I was know. a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I miss that a lot. Oh, me too. So I yeah, for know. me, is the food. The food is the most important thing. There was, um, there's this person that I follow on Instagram and the account is called grief hungry. And initially when I first saw it, I was like, that's strange, <laughs> strange concept. And this, um, this person, she, I think it's a, she, I could be wrong. Um, she recreates recipes from her parents who have passed on or the loved ones who have passed on. So she keeps the recipes and she recreates them. And she, you know, she shares it through Instagram and she talks about it. Um, and there's usually quite, quite a spiel that she writes about and how, what, what comes up for her and, you know, what it means and the memories and how she connects and relates to it. And also the language. And I didn't know uh, her background, but until couple of days ago, she posted a, a traditional Malay dish. And I was like, oh, I wouldn't have known. It's so crazy. You don't know who it is on the other side of the phone on Instagram. Um, and, um, and it was, this dish was called Mirabos and I love Mirabos. So, um, and this is still kind of like a stranger to me, right? It's just an account I follow. And I messaged her and I said, you know, I haven't had this dish in years, also because I've been stuck in Australia. Um, and I don't have a recipe from my mom for this dish. And my mom is gone. So I thought that I might actually recreate her recipe, her mother's recipe, um, and dedicate it to her. Um, and, and it's also part of my culture, this dish, because, you know, it's I don't have the recipe because my mom never taught me hers, but it's something I grew up eating. And it made me realize how pertinent and how important food is in language, in culture, in um, social interactions, in learning. And if you keep thinking more and more, food is the source of nourishment. And finding food and cooking food and eating food is something that is so entrenched in our biology, in our evolution, that we, we often think that it's something we need to live, but it is, food is the stem of a lot of human progress, I would say. Well, it's absolutely, you know, it's, it's, it's the most important thing, you know, you connect with people through food. So yeah, maybe we should we should do a show on food, Amira. Yes, we should. Let's just talk. Exactly. We can cook, exchange recipes, talk about the food, talk the story about the food. What the, I mean, I think that would be a great show. That'd be awesome. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it next time. And hopefully, our listeners will also tune into our <laughs> our cooking show mashup thing. Sounds great. Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, and I'll put all those um, details below in the description. 
and you can reach out to her. Bye! Bye!